We will begin reading in verse 17 to verse 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. This is God's holy word. Please give it your full attention. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Saints, this is the word of God. Let us pray. Triune God, we once more come to you and ask that you would give assistance to our hearing, that we, Lord, would uh, understand as you give understanding to our minds. Help us to believe and obey. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, I, I reasoned that it would be appropriate in light of the consistent reading of the law that this morning we revisit a sermon that was preached uh, maybe four years ago now concerning the law and its relationship to the believer. Each Lord's Day, uh, you and I are hearing the law of God in our ears. And for some, we may have uh, questions as to why we are reading the law. What exactly is the relationship between the law of God and the believer? A common question is this. If our salvation is by grace, and our sanctification takes place through union with Christ in the power of the Spirit, what role, if any, is left for God's law? Doesn't the gospel abolish the law? Truthfully, there are some who even when they hear the word law, cringe. Isn't it true that the law no longer functions in any sense in the Christian's life? That it has no place. And even if the issue has already been answered in your minds, I'm sure that some of us may at one point or another have to grapple with this question, either with ourselves or with others. So this afternoon, with God's help, we shall seek to discuss one of the most important questions that a believer will have to wrestle with. What is the relationship between the law of God and the believer? Is there... Uh, some relationship between God's law and God's children that is true in every age and in every place for every single believer of Christ. You've heard this, haven't you? Christianity is about a relationship with Christ. 
and not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. You've heard that God loves you just the way that you are. And any divine demand is seen as a return to legalism. That Christianity is about love, not law. It's about a relationship, not a ritual. It's a relationship, not a religion. Uh, This, my dear friends, these are distorted views, and they are not true. For one, the New Testament is punctuated with commands, telling us what we are to do and what we are not to do. So for anyone to say Christianity is not about do's and don'ts, they obviously had not, have not read the New Testament. The truth is that, since the fall of Adam, God has only loved one person just the way they are. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not lose sight of the fact that it is, that it is precisely because the way that we are that Christ has gone to the cross. God has loved us But if God had loved us just the way that we are, then there would be no need for Christ to come and stand in our place. No, God does not love you just the way that you are. If that was the case, then God would not be conforming you to Christ. God is conforming you to who you were created to be. Not who you have been in Adam. God loves us despite who we are. But God is making us like himself. There is anyone then who should explain to us then what the the law of God and its role in the life of the believer is. It is our Lord Christ himself. It is important that as we read through Matthew chapter 5, that we understand that when Christ is speaking about the law, he's speaking about the Decalogue. Decalogue means, Deca means ten, the ten words, log, word. The ten words. God is speaking about the law. Christ is speaking about the law of God. And he says in Matthew 17, 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Uh, Christ is speaking about the law and the prophets. They were a designation for the Old Testament scriptures. Christ is saying, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill all that they have said. As we read uh, further, we find that there's there's something more to this expression of the word law, or the phrase law. Christ says in verse 18, I say to you, truly or verily I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass, stroke with a pen, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Christ, brothers and sisters, has not come to destroy the law. He has not come to destroy the prophets. But focus his attention on this. Not even one letter, not even one stroke of the pen shall pass away until all is accomplished. What law, what letter, what stroke of pen? Christ gives us more insight when he says, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to annul them in the same way. They shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. They are in reference to that which he has said he's come not to destroy. In verse 18, the commandments are the, the ten words of God. Christ has not come to abolish them. 
Christ has not come to abolish the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Christ, rather, is upholding them. The Ten Commandments are the moral character of God. They are His holy and righteous standard by which all men must abide. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that Christ is speaking about the Ten Commandments? Because as we proceed from Matthew 5.21 to Matthew 7.27, Christ begins to give true expositions or true explanations of the moral law of God and correct false ones. He gives true expositions and true applications to the law of God in contrast to the false expositions from the scribes, Pharisees, and rabbis. He does this by saying with a beginning, you have heard it that it you have heard that it was said, referring to the traditional interpretation of God's law. And then Christ will counter that by saying, But I say to you. Christ is countering false interpretations with true interpretations from the one who wrote the law. Christ is the true Amen of God. He is the the verily, verily from God. So this afternoon, I have four points, hang with me, for your consideration. Number one, Jesus proclaims for all time the perpetual validity of the law of God. That's a huge point. Jesus proclaims for all time the perpetual validity of the law of God. One more time. Jesus proclaims for all time the perpetual validity of the law of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish, destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What did Jesus, or why did Jesus say this? Think about that. Think about the issue that he is openly addressing to people. Imagine Christ, here he is. He's speaking on the mount, and he's saying to everyone, Don't think that I'm here to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy it, he says. Nor did I come to destroy the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Why is he saying and making such a statement? Well, there is an issue surrounding Jesus. And how Jesus related to the prophets of old and to the law of old. Is Jesus, is he in concert with the prophets who have come before him? Because they are seeing this man Jesus and the one who was his forerunner, John, as being significant people. Remember, there has been no word from God for over 400 years. And now John is crying out in the wilderness. And Jesus is following him because John is saying, That man, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. The scribes and Pharisees are seeing miracles worked by this man. And they're saying, Who are you? Are you in concert with those who have come before? Are you, are, or are you in contradiction to the ones who have come before? Why are they asking that question? Because of what Jesus has done. Think about this. Christ is being put to the test on whether or not He will do a work on the Sabbath. Uh, Side note, any person who says that Jesus broke the Sabbath is absolutely wrong. Any person who says Jesus broke the Sabbath to say that He was Lord of the Sabbath has no understanding of what's coming out of their mouth. If Christ broke the Sabbath, Christ is a lawbreaker. If Christ is a lawbreaker, Christ is in need of a Savior just like you and me. 
he is put to the test. Will he do a work on the Sabbath? What's the work? Will he heal this man and deem it um, acceptable for this man to take up his mat and walk? Which would be considered a work. In the view of the religious leaders, Christ would be violating the law of God if he healed a man on the Sabbath. And he does. Therefore, he's viewed by, by the religious leaders as being a lawbreaker. So they're asking him, are you in concert with the law? Are you in concert with the prophets? Or are you against them? Again, the disciples were walking through grain fields on the Sabbath. And they began to pick heads of grain because they are hungry. The religious leaders began to challenge Christ. Why are you allowing your disciples to do such work on the Sabbath? Are you here to, to completely ignore the law? Are, are, are you in concert with God's holy men? Or are you against them? They gnashed their teeth at him when Christ welcomed sinners to his table. Do you know who do you know what kind of woman this is? Christ accepted the invitations of sinners. He would go to their homes. Do you know who you were having dinner with? Those who were seen as the refuse of society, Christ openly associated himself with them. If you knew what kind of woman who was at your feet, you would tell her to go away. But Christ welcomes her. They saw Christ as the great enemy of the law, the great enemy of their tradition, the great enemy of the law of God, and they determined that they should kill him, lest his influence spread throughout the land. Jesus says, though, I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Think about the word destroy. Where is, he, where is Christ getting the word destroy from? It's a very unique word. He is most certainly picking up on a word that has been used about him. He has come to destroy. And Christ is saying, I have not come to destroy, I have come to fulfill. He was seen as a type of demolition man who was trying to take the law apart brick by brick before their very eyes. He was called a wine drinker and glutton who was destroying the law of God. And they believed that it was only the man who broke the law of God who could truly know joy. If you, if you have joy, it's because you're a lawbreaker, not because you're a law keeper. Liberty and blessedness only came from those who broke the law. Because there could be no joy in keeping the law. They did not understand that the joy that Christ had was a joy in obedience. Contrary to their interpretation of the law. They were astonished and confused when Christ said that he did not come to destroy but fulfill. When all of the evidences from their point of view was that you are actually destroying and not fulfilling. He delighted to do the will of God. And says that the law of God is the most stable thing in the entire world. It's not going anywhere, he says to them. Those who are saying you're a lawbreaker is, is pronouncing to everyone, this law is not going anywhere. And anyone who teaches anyone else to break the law is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, they would be saying, well, then you're speaking about yourself. Christ says, the only thing that remains 
the only thing that will be perpetually valid in all days and in all ages is God's law. And He has not come to destroy it. Now, what law? Not, n- n- not civil. Although Christ did uh, come and maintain the civil law. He kept it. Christ kept all of the law on our behalf to show the true significance and the meaning of it. To fulfill the significance of the ceremonies and sacrifices so that there would be no room for animal sacrifices that typified the meaning of His sacrifice. So that when Christ was revealed as true Israel and the true man of God, true light of the world, there would no longer be any need for legal divisions that separated the old covenant people of God and the rest of mankind. He dies as a Passover lamb to break down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He fulfills the ceremonies and lays them aside by fulfilling the duties of the civic function and and therefore bringing them to an end. He brings that part of the law to to the end, to an end. But the moral law of God remains. It is perpetual. And it remains until Christ returns. Number two. Jesus expounds the true spirituality of the law. Jesus expounds the true spirituality of the law. He says in verse 20, this is interesting, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus prefaces this statement in other versions with a verily, verily, or amen, amen, in that he is the faithful witness to this fact. Now listen closely. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you, us, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's as though Christ says this, if you miss this, you miss everything. The righteousness of these men was the standard. Of who? The scribes and Pharisees. It was said in those days that only two men would enter heaven. One would be a scribe, the other would be a Pharisee. Paul speaks about his conduct as a Pharisee, as we said in our Sabbath school, as being impeccable. As to the law, he says, blameless, Paul says. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. These men sought to devote themselves to absolute external holiness. They adhered to 248 commands, 365 prohibitions. So this statement of being more righteous than the Pharisees, it would have been astonishing for hearers who heard this. They had been told by the Pharisees, This is the way that your life should be lived. And Christ is saying, no, it's got to even be better than that. Unless your righteousness is better than their righteousness, you are not going into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is uh, interesting. Because Christ says, you don't need to be like them, you need to be better than them. And if not, you're not going into heaven. Better than Him? How am I going to be better than Him? Now, some of us might say, by Christ's righteousness. Right? He's speaking of His own imputed righteousness that He provides. He's saying, you need me. 
Brothers and sisters, let me say this. It would be blasphemy for me to detract from the righteousness that Christ provides. But I submit to you that the righteousness of Christ is not what is in view here. All reputable scholars agree on this point. Christ is not pointing to his righteousness. He's actually pointing to your righteousness. He's saying, you, you, and you, you must be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, or you will be barred from the kingdom of heaven. It's not, unless you receive my righteousness, which is true. But it is, just as you heard it. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, the gates of heaven are closed to you. How is this so, we should ask? Go to the expositions of Christ and see what he means. It does not qualify us for the kingdom of God. Your righteousness does not qualify you for the kingdom of God. But a lack of it will debar you, exclude you from the kingdom of God. He is saying what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Strive for holiness for which no man will see the Lord. Without which no man will see the Lord. If you don't have holiness, you won't see God. You must be holy. I must be holy. He is not saying that by striving we will gain entrance. But there can never be entrance without it. Now that seems like a contradiction. But it is a paradox. Because Christ goes on to distinguish between the righteousness of the Pharisee and the righteousness of the believer. He makes a contrast between the two. As he goes on, he he begins to uncover the true nature of the Pharisees and their righteousness. Listen to what he does. For his righteousness or their righteousness was a ceremonial righteousness and not a moral one. Their righteousness was a traditional traditional one. It, it was a traditions of men kind of righteousness. It was not a righteousness that emanated from radically being devoted for, to God in their heart. Their righteousness was a natural one, not a supernatural one. It was an outward conduct, outward show rather than inward sincerity. It was performed meritoriously. You remember the publican who says, or the Pharisee who says, I thank you that I am different from all these other men. I give, I fast, I pray. It was a righteousness that sought to be right outwardly and to be seen by others as being holy. But true righteousness, the true righteousness that God seeks after, is one that comes from a repentant heart. You'll see this in every illustration that Jesus uses. Exposition after exposition, Christ is tearing away the mask or the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and exposes them as not being truly righteous in their heart, but only performing an outward act of righteousness. You're pretending to be righteous, but you really are not. It demonstrates that righteousness that Jesus demands and creates in the life of the believer is a righteousness that goes to the very heart 
of your being. It's not natural righteousness. It's not outward righteousness. It's spiritual righteousness. It's the law of God set before the believer who, with the law of God written on their heart, responds to God's law every time they hear it out of love and devotion to God. Like an echo that responds to an echo. When the believer hears what God requires, the believer longs out of true love, not out of performance, to truly honor and obey God. Is this what God commands? That I long to do it. Is this what God desires for His children? Then I long to obey it. Without that passion and desire to obey the law of God, then we have not true righteousness. And the true righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisee is this. If you're wondering, well, what is it? It's one that comes from the heart and not one that is just done for performance. That was the distinction. The Pharisees was for the sake of show. Christ is saying, you've got to be better than that. And it's not to say that that people should not see your righteousness. It's where does it come from? What's the goal of it? Is your righteousness, is the goal of your righteousness to honor and glorify God or is it to be seen by men and have them think well of you? Now, is it wrong for you to live right before men and to have them think well of you? No. But if that is the goal, then Christ says, then you have what you desire. If your goal is to have them say, what a guy, what a girl, that's all the reward you will ever get. But if your goal is to glorify God, and in the process, men will see your good deeds and praise God, then that is the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. The law of God, when it comes, when we hear all that God has commanded, it should smite our conscience. Because it is a reflection of who God is. It it should drive us to want to honor God. And the only way that from the heart we can have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees is if our hearts have been changed. In doing so, we have hearts that truly do long to worship and honor God and obey all that He has commanded. New hearts come from placing faith in Christ, the Righteous One. And Christ, the Righteous One, makes us like Him. What was the meat, the drink of Christ? To do the will of God. You need to eat. He said, I have food that you don't even know of. Drink, you're thirsty. He says to them, I am so uh, I, I am quenched uh, my, my, my soul is filled as he is doing God's will Christ is saying this the law is spiritual it leads us and gives us eyes to see the way of the spirit Sometimes we look at the law of God and say it's carnal it's not it's spiritual the law is spiritual but, but Paul says but I am carnal. The law calls us to walk in the way of the Spirit. Not in the way of the flesh. 
And what is at the heart of this? That when we hear God's law, we would say all that God has said is good. All that God has said is the pathway of life and life abundant. The law is spiritual. Because Jesus said the law is spiritual. It gives Him passion to serve God and eyes to see how God would have Him serve. Christ is not coming just to clarify false teaching. But Christ is coming to proclaim joy and grace to all those who have the law of God written on their heart. You want to be, you want to be more righteous than the Pharisees? Then this is not a show. This is not so that he or she can be appeased. All that we do is for the glory of God. And let all of our righteous deeds be seen by men so that they can give honor and glory to God alone. Third. Christ guarantees the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Matthew 5.17 Christ says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I've been hinting at this. But it would be a mistake to think that Christ Jesus abolishes the law of God. Uh, It would be a mistake to think that Christ abolishes the law of God. And it would be equally a mistake to believe that Christ is bringing thunder and lightning of Sinai with the law of God to the child of God. Meaning this. It would be a mistake for us to think that the law is no more. And on the opposite side, it would be a mistake for us to think that Christ is then bringing us back to Mount Sinai and saying, See, look at the thunder, look at the lightning, you are under that kind of law again. Not the case. We're talking about two extremes. We're talking about antinomianism and legalism. And Christ is not advocating for either one of them. It would be a great distortion to think that in expounding the spirituality of the law... That Christ is threatening us and speaking as though He was a policeman. He's not saying the law is still in effect, so you better watch yourselves. On the contrary, Christ promises His disciples and all believers, before He expounds the law, that He is giving them a promise of the new covenant fulfilled. He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the Word of God made flesh and he is guaranteeing to all who have faith that he has come to establish the new covenant and and what is the promise of the new covenant it is that he will remember your sins no more that you shall be his people and he shall be your God that, that you will not have to teach your neighbor to know God they will know God and in that Christ is not destroying the law. He's fulfilling it. He comes with the law in His hands not to destroy or to destroy we who would trust in Him but as one who would fulfill it and save us in the process. Uh, Much time of the New Testament is taking up expounding how the Lord Jesus has fulfilled the law. How? Well, let's deal with just a few as we come to a close. The law of God is fulfilled in Christ in His doctrine. For He takes the law of God and gives the true exposition, the true meaning of God's law. He has made God known. 2 Corinthians 3 essentially says that no man really understands the law of God, but Christ, the Son of God, has fulfilled the law and made the law known. 
Christ has shown the true significance of the law. We know the law and its meaning because of Christ. We could never come at the depths of the true significance of the law of God until we heard the law of God from the voice of the one who gave the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled His own doctrine. He has made it known to us. Not only this, but in His doctrine that He taught, He fulfilled it in His own blessed life. Christ not only gave us the exposition of His law, but fulfills the law in His own life. He was the man of Psalm 1. He's the man of Psalm 40. The man who delighted in the law of God, whose law was written in his heart. He fulfilled the law of God by obeying his own law. He fulfilled the law of God by his own deeds. He came into the world and was able to save men and say to men and women, which of you, by the standard of the law of God, can accuse me of any sin? And dear saints, they were all silenced. No one could accuse Christ of any wrongdoing. Uh, You remember toward the end of the book of Luke, when in occasion after occasion, Christ is condemned by the Jewish law on one hand, and then accused and condemned on the Roman law. And then finally, both Jew and Gentile are constrained to confess this man is innocent of any wrongdoing. He's done nothing worthy of death. He's the great prophet of the church who fulfilled the law in his doctrine, fulfilled the law in his deeds, and he fulfills the law in his death. He is the one who is not only obedient to the commands of God, but the one who, because he himself was obedient, was set free from the condemnation of the law, and therefore free to bear upon his own body and soul the condemnation and the curse of the law that is due to you and I. As our Savior and our Mediator, if there was any doubt whatsoever that Christ came to fulfill the law of God, we only need to go to the steps of Golgotha and stand before Calvary, see the darkness of the sky that afternoon and hear the cry from His voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we hear the response of heaven. Because you have come to fulfill my law, not only by your teaching, not only by your living, but by your bearing the penalty and the curse and becoming a curse for your people. There he fulfilled the law and Christ became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. All of the justice fell fully and wholly on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In His deed, in His doctrine, in His death, and thank God by His disciples. At this point, uh, it's important that as Christ Himself gives the new covenant, is the fulfillment of the new covenant, that He also gives to His people His law that we might continue not only to teach it, but to fulfill it as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Christ stands and says to these disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Remember, brothers and sisters, that everything that Christ has said, has said 
on this premise, on this foundation, that He has come to fulfill all righteousness. But also, that not only Him in Himself, that He has given His righteousness to His children, that we too might fulfill His law. Now, that doesn't mean that we fulfill the law. That means that Christ has fulfilled the law, but He has extended this fulfillment through us in our obedience. It would be awful for those who are... It is awful for those who are outside of Christ to hear these words from Christ. What is, which is what? That Christ Himself fulfills the law. That Christ Himself gives His law to His people that we might fulfill it. But if you are not in Christ, these words are damning. If you are in Christ, they are joyful. God has given to you His law. That you might be His hands and His feet extending the work of God throughout the world. But if you are not in Christ, if you are not a part of His body, then these words are they are awful for you to hear. The gospel promise is that what Christ has done in Himself, He will do in His children. But if you are not one of His children, then you stand under His condemnation and under the condemnation of the law. You are not a part of fulfilling it. You are those who are still in violation of it. It is a danger to hear. Paul says in Romans 8, the whole purpose of Christ's coming is that He came to do what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh but by the Spirit. Not using the law as a way to salvation but those who walk according to the Spirit see the law as a rule of life and say with Christ who lives within them by His Spirit I delight in Your law, O Lord. Your law is written on my heart. Brothers and sisters, Christ calls all of His disciples to say after Him, all that You have commanded, not only will I obey, but I delight to obey. God has given to all of us by His Spirit a desire to say, Oh, how I love Thy law and long to obey. I pray that that is true for you, brothers and sisters. That as you hear God's law, that you do not cringe at it, but that you delight in it. Fourth and finally, Jesus explains the function of the law. Verse 19, Whoever shall break one of the least of these commandments, whoever shall break one of the least of these commandments and teach others to break them as well, shall be called least in the kingdom of God. Christ notice if you will, is not speaking about our isolated moral failures but rather our heart posture and attitude toward God's law whoever breaks this and teaches others to break it is least or outside of the kingdom that is a heart posture if you were telling others and teaching others to break God's law your heart does not belong to God. Whoever has this attitude that they reject the law of God and teach others to do so 
is not a part of the kingdom of God. I pray that you see the need for reverence to God's law. He says it is the ultimate test of how we will be judged as standing or falling in relationship to the kingdom of God. Do you love God's law or do you hate God's law? If you love God's law, you are a part of the kingdom. If you hate God's law, you are not a part of the kingdom. Not a way into God's God's kingdom. But the attitude of those who are a part of God's kingdom. Christ pronounces an anathema against any who would break the commandments of God and teach others to also break the commandments of God. Again, it is not a means of entry, but it is the evidence that we have entered. That we have been brought into the kingdom of God when we love God's law. And brothers and sisters, each Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we are hearing not only the Ten Commandments, but all that God commands is His law. And if we do not love what God commands, then we are in danger of not being a part of the kingdom of God. God has written His law on our hearts. And evidence that His law has been written on our hearts is when we adore what God commands. It must be our delight not only to hear God's law, to obey it, not only to obey it, but to teach others to obey it as well. We are excluded from breaking God's holy law. We're not allowed to do it. God enables you and I to fulfill His law. And our attitude toward Him should be, I love it. When Christ, when in Christ the veil that has blinded us from the true significance of the law has been removed, when we now see the beauty of the law, we can say with Christ, Oh, how I love thy law. It is our meat and our drink. We can cry out as children of God, Abba Father, and long for all that he has given to us to obey. What's the function? The function is that God has given to us His law and set them as tracks before us as a way to live a holy and righteous life before God, not just externally. For the external emanates from the internal. I love and desire to obey God, not so that I can be seen by men, but because from my heart I truly love God And I pray that the testimony from men who surround you and women who surround you would be this. That they honor and praise God because of you. Let's pray.